Hello, you have found yourself in the land of the Power in Partnerships podcast series by Rising Arts Agency and King's College London. You're about to witness the unfurling of episode three, which continues the theme of exploring power imbalances in cultural and creative partnerships. As always, if you'd like to interact with the text version of this episode, you can find a link to a transcript in the show notes. So Jess did a really wonderful job at setting the scene for this episode, so I'm going to shut up and leave it to them to introduce things. But I'll be calling back in later on, so I'll see you then. Okay, so we are, I don't know how many months into Collaborate now, and for the last three or four months, uh, Andriana Drencheva, the researcher, Um, from King's College London has been interviewing various people about their personal experiences of power dynamics in the partnership work that they've done. Um, And this is focused mainly on grassroots organisations and institutions or people within institutions um, following the lab we did with Rising's community of freelancers. So uh, we're really excited to hear some of the kind of themes that are coming up from those interviews and whether there's any uh, spaces that need a bit more attention in how we dismantle those barriers and improve partnership, share the power. Yeah. Um, So that's right. I've been doing interviews with people in grassroots organisations as well as cultural institutions that have been established for quite a while. And realistically speaking, I don't think that anything that people have shared would be particularly surprising because what does an equitable partnership look and feel like? It's all the things that we value as people. It's being trusted to actually make decisions, to to be a good human being. It's feeling valued and feeling like you're actually contributing with the expertise that you have, the knowledge you have, the skills you have, and really celebrating that expertise. It's making decisions together instead of being put on an application that someone else submits on your behalf without even asking for permission, let alone actually making decisions collaboratively. And also taking responsibility for the harm caused, even when people have the best intentions possible or organizations try to have the best intentions possible. Sometimes harm does happen and it's taking responsibility for that. And then finally, it's about transparency and moving at the right pace, acknowledging that everyone might have different capacity, different resources, um, instead of taking for granted that one partner might move exactly at the same pace, have the same resources as everyone else without acknowledging where they are and what they need and really removing those barriers. And I don't think that that would be shocking or surprising for anyone. That's really, really common sense. Um, But what's really not necessarily that common is how often when people reflect on their partnerships, they think about, well, who benefits Is this genuinely a partnership where we're getting the most out of it and we're really achieving our goals, living by our values and working towards our mission? Or are we just delivering someone else's work, in which case we may benefit financially, but that's about it. And that's something that really came up very often in the conversations with 
um, people in grassroots organizations, but also at times um, people in cultural institutions who really acknowledge that lack of balance between who benefits and how institutions willingly or unwillingly might be extractive in terms of the more benefit that they get out of these partnerships. And then the other thing that I thought was um, quite interesting is this paradox that people in grassroots organisation very often uh, spoke about, which is we know that we are valued and we bring value because Arts Council tells, tells us that we bring a lot of creativity, a lot of skills, new audiences, and we know that what we do can make a difference. And yet our work doesn't feel valued. We don't feel valued. And it's that paradox that really creates um, a discrepancy that's really difficult emotionally to deal with. Mm. Um, And that really comes from being in a place where the expertise of people in these organisations or these grassroots organisations is not acknowledged or celebrated because they're constrained, they're put in a box that doesn't allow them to really showcase all of their brilliant skills, knowledge, capacity. So how can grassroots organisations participate on more equitable terms? Well, it's about removing those barriers, whether it's multiple modalities to work together, whether it's giving them the time to actually participate in decision-making, whether it's well-being budgets that really allow everyone uh, to do their best work. So I guess my question for you as people who are um, insiders is what does removing the barriers mean to you and what are the good examples of removing these barriers that you have seen or experienced in your work? Hmm. None. No one has the best to remove barriers. <laughs> I mean, I laugh, but sadly, um, that was a, that's not atypical. A mm. lot of the people who've participate, participated in these interviews have shared exactly that experience, that they're put in these boxes and expected yeah. to participate exactly on the terms imposed by cultural institutions and the arts game, as very often was referred to. Mm-hmm. And there were very few examples where uh, people shared really good practice, maybe not mm-hmm. necessarily best practice, but good practice of removing barriers and allowing everyone to participate. Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, something, you know, just kind of um, that thing, what you said about putting certain organisations in boxes, um I think some of the mo- more interesting or more equitable partnerships are those that are not based around a project that is um, around aligning of values and mission of like, what are we trying to achieve on a bigger scale and how can we both either put resources, put expertise into achieving that? Often it's around a real short-term goal. So the kind of timelines and the ways in which um, both parties are expected to operate is very reductive to a particular programme of activity, a certain audience or whatever. But actually, if we're thinking of of the the sector on scale or thinking about the mission of organisations, which is something that often organisations don't really consider um, or don't really think about their mission often when it comes to what's their long-term goal you know even when they're thinking about strategies it's about 
just being able to exist and continue doing the work that they always do but it's actually like what is our mission what are we here to do in terms of um the value that um that organization or organizations put into the world so i think partnerships that really interrogate um or come together based on a longer term vision just of like hey you do cool stuff we do cool stuff let's let's think about how we might do cool stuff together is a much more organic approach than being like hey we're writing this bid for this thing it's partly we're writing the bid because we need a little bit of money to go into our core you know but it looks better if we put you in that bid sort of thing so it's like a different approach about how you're thinking about how partnerships um even start you are right on the money um, because that's something that came up very often. And um, there was a really interesting point of, is even partnership the term that we should be using mm. for every co- project that involves multiple entities? Yeah. Because partnerships should really be used for relationships that are built on shared values, on trust, that are very much long-term, and where people and the organisations they represent um, should feel like they're working towards their mission. And maybe we're being incredibly lazy in our use of the label partnership to mm. capture any sort of project that involves multiple entities that in reality isn't a partnership, isn't a relationship. It's just something that needs to get done because people might need resources and mm. someone might need a different audience to be brought into the project to meet uh, whatever requirements they have from a funder. So how can we use a richer language or a more nuanced language to actually acknowledge all of these different forms of working together that might not necessarily represent a genuine partnership? Yeah, man, that's, yeah. (laughs) No, I totally (laughs) agree. Like, I think with, like, I think the way in which Rising has intended to use the word partner is we are partners in achieving this mission of creating social change within the sector. And it's that idea of like, we cannot do what we're trying to do alone. So therefore partner um, becomes more of a, a bit more of a subversive term. But yeah, I think on the whole, the way that partnership is used um, in the sector is is lazy, but also... um, covers up a lot of the actual things a lot of the power dynamics that's going like in some industries they use words like client and whatever Mm. and although that doesn't feel as nice language for the art sector at least it's more transparent about what is actually happening of like this is a transactional relationship whereas we're like oh we're partners and you know I think we we're kind of exploring that thing of like there are some partners that we have that we have really, really, really great and strong relationships and partners that we have that is very transactional. And does it do justice to like the ambition raising that we're trying to do within the sector to call everyone a partner? There's no initiate, um, uh, there's no um, incentive for people to do better if you're basic and you're still called a partner or, you know, or you're amazing and you're still called a partner. But I don't know what you you think about that, Jess. Yeah, I think um, that concept of, like, something being transactional, being negative, 
Mm. Um, like I know we went back and forth a lot at Rising about calling some of our services consultancy because there's a perception of consultancy or consultants that is bad that they come in and they don't listen and they have their own agenda and they get paid loads of money which is not the form of consultancy that we do but I guess that word became important because it gives people a level of uh, power in a space to be a consultant versus oh a group of young people are coming in to like talk to us about what we do is a very different thing than a group of young consultants are coming to talk to us about what we do which is like they're going to call us out on what we're doing badly um and I do think uh that uncomfortableness in the sector to talk explicitly about business relationships about money about when things are transactional because I don't think that there's necessarily that people don't want those kind of relationships too from a grassroots point of view from a rising point of view it's not that some of the relationships that we want might be more transactional there might just be like we'll pay you to deliver this thing or for this opportunity for a young person and maybe that doesn't make the type of change that we widely want to make in our partnerships but it still has a form of value hopefully (laughs) but I think by not naming that when you go in sometimes we start a relationship on this basis of partnership and then later find out that it's transactional and I think that Um, difference between the kind of sense making at the beginning like you were saying Andriana about like what it would look like to remove those barriers I feel like so much of it is just fundamentally misunderstanding what grassroots organizations do because it is often multifaceted it is often not very well marketed or story told or ever and actually spending that time to be like oh you're all of these things that could support our organization and then finding the places of vulnerability where you can genuinely explore that I think is a way to remove some of that and start these really genuine partnerships but I think so often it is that transactional relationship it's like shit we need to tick that box you know, who have we worked with before? Who can I Google and find at the top who's got good SEO or whatever it is? Mm. It's like there's no genuine like relationship building that goes into it, which is where you find out who people are, what they want, their ambitions, like how you can support each other. Um, But yeah, but then that's again, talking more relationally, which has often led to abuses of power when you start talking relationally about some of these more transactional relationships so it's difficult I mean I'm from a point of view that we sometimes just want to take people's money (laughs) and the work we do will be great but they don't necessarily get touched by that but because they're giving us money instead of a traditional agency that will make Mm. impact and change but I'm I know there are people who are like well why would you take that money anyway um and I'm not talking about like awful horrible people but I do think there is there is change in redistributing money like um and sometimes that might be the only way you can get into these places or at least put your foot in the door and then they realize oh there's so much more here So one question we explored in this episode was around whether there were any examples of good and healthy partnerships 
between grassroots organizations and larger cultural institutions. Let's see what Adi has to share about this. In a lot of the conversations, when I've asked people from grassroots organizations to give examples of equitable partnerships, very often I'm met with laughter or silence. Um, but there have been some examples, and one of them is institutions actually taking responsibility for the harm they've done. And for example, maybe paying for the therapy of someone who has been a victim of racism in their building, but also paying for the person who caused the harm to get the training required, to get the skills required, so they don't, don't do this um, anymore. And I think that's a massive shift in terms of taking that responsibility, that accountability, and being accountable as an institution to do better instead of relying on the good intentions of a few people who at some point may burn out and leave. Mm. That's so interesting because it's responsive to something that already happened. Well, ideally, um, <laughs> I guess, yes, we wouldn't want these things to happen. Um, but I guess also for some of the cultural institutions, um, it's also the fact that it's not just them in their building. Yeah. They also bring other people. And where do you draw the line in terms of what you take responsibility for? Yeah. How do you make choices for the other associates or partners you might have on a project who may be the ones inflicting that harm? But ultimately, you're responsible for choosing them mm. and putting them in the same room where they might cause that level of harm. Mm. Mm. That's really, that well, really says, there's hope there's hope mm. like Sorry. um we were like <laughs> um looking like back in our august of rest we were like looking a bit at like harm and accountability and what our relationship to harm is um and like when you're in particularly in a position like rising where you sit between a, a community and a sector um, I think you have to have quite sophisticated um, ideas and relationships to harm and like what is the harm that you will not tolerate but you can maybe hold or um, work through versus the harm that you will not stand for. One of the things that um, enables Rising to to support so many people or feel confident that we holding our integrity of our values with anyone that we speak to is this idea that like for example we see our team as also part of our community we see everyone as equal we see you know we have a much more expansive understanding of what a community is and where our resources where our care goes um and so I think there is you know harm accountability but also this idea of um yeah, not not conflict, but this idea of the, who are the insiders, who are part of your inside group, um, needs to be a lot more nuanced and expansive. If you don't mind me asking, what were your reflections on harm and your position that you take in terms of being in the middle between your community and institutions that may or may not have the same understanding of harm or might be at a different stage of their journey towards equity. The policy's not finished. <laughs> I think it was one of those things that actually opened up, opened up a can of worms in the sense of like, 
um, like definitely from an individual perspective, speaking for myself, is like your view on harm changes and it's not particularly, and it, and it can be quite subjective of like the thing, the harm that you think is acceptable harm in service of change and the harm that you don't think is, you know, acceptable. So I think it was actually more of an, um, more of a reflection exercise. Um, and maybe Jess has got things that you want to say, but like a reflection exercise on this idea of like, we, we do really need to have a conversation about harm. Um, and thinking about, you know, the harm that we inflict to others that we haven't quite thought about or like who, you know, we were looking particularly like Adrienne Marie Brown and like um, emergent strategy and this and ideas around um, transformational like harm and, and conflict and thinking about the ways in which you can go from a point of harm and how you can turn that into something different, something generative. Um, and that's when you're really tested in terms of thinking are we going to use this as a teachable moment where we're going to offer you exactly the same grace that we would give everyone else, despite all of maybe the historic and structural uh, privileges and power that you're afforded? Can we give everyone the same amount of grace? And that is like an ethical, philosophical question in my in my mind that needs to have more than just the co-directors in that conversation. Because that's basically what it's what it takes in terms of thinking about sector change, and if I think if you speak to Andrianne Marie Brown, she would say you've you've got to kind of go beyond the you know the act of harm to understand what's going on for that person, where they're coming from, what caused them to do that harmful thing, and all that stuff. But there's that also thing of that thing of like, is that what Rising is here to do? You know, are, are, are you the people that we're trying to work? You know, we've got a community that we're trying to serve. So I think it's actually just highlighted the complexity of it. Because um, I thought it would be really easy to just be like, this is what we tolerate. This is what we don't tolerate. And done. There you go. There's your policy. <laughs> but actually, <laughs> but Jess, I don't know if you want to say anything. I guess it's just like fundamentally not writing anyone off. And mm. I think there's a constant conversation within Rising about, like, wouldn't it just be easier to work with people who get it already? But mm. that's not where change happens. Like, and um, also, like, how we can empower our community to know when they're w walking into potentially toxic spaces without taking that agency away from them to like figure that out because just because one person or one of us has had a bad experience with a partner doesn't mean they will and I think we constantly kind of um are thinking in relation to our community and our partners so often we are the sponge for a lot of that harm but because it's not personally at us we have rising we have this community behind us it's easier in some ways to fight that fight depending on the person I think that's also something to say in this about personal lived experience means you're sometimes not the person to fight that fight and that's like totally cool that's why there's other people in the space um 
but yeah, I think there is something about that like slight distance of like I'm fighting for a young person or I'm fighting for change versus like I'm fighting for you to see my humanity or value me, like how we navigate that. And but I think like Uella is saying, like giving people the chance to come back from harming people and supporting them on that journey to realising that they've caused harm and how to not do that again mm. is probably an important part of this work. Um, but it shouldn't be the only part and it shouldn't be always an under-resourced, unresourced, unacknowledged, um, undermined, um, yeah... Because I think ultimately like that's what sits at the heart of these power dynamics sometimes is like not wanting to own that you fucked up or in what ways you fucked up and someone calling you on it and you getting defensive is just more emotional labour for the person trying to convince you <laughs> that you fucked up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a, lot of, a lot of these, um, like a lot of grassroots organisations, that is the role that they play. And I think there is that thing of like, you know, rising advocates a lot for people not to just be about their lived experience or to do that role, that stereotypical role that the sector often demands of them. Oh, you're a disabled person. You must act, be in this capacity or you can be a creative in this way or you're a black person, you can do this. Um, and I think there is something that happens on a larger scale with grassroots organisations of like, that's the role that you play. But what does the organisation actually learn? You know, what does what changes when you have someone to rely on to do that? And I think there is something quite subversive in organisations that are of that type saying, actually, no, we will not do that. Or that's not the only role that we play. Or we want to be more... You know, so I think there is something as well about the typecasting that grassroots organisations can get into. And I think that's mm. why I think for some people it's been really hard to kind of understand rising and what we do because people are like, you, shouldn't you be doing this one thing? And we're like, no, we, we want to do more. Like we are bigger than just cleaning up your crap. You know, we have aspirations and we, you know, as a as a grassroots organisation, we, you know, we want to be multifaceted and as dynamic and intersectional as our community. And if we're just constantly in service of organisations trying to make them look good, you know, not even a value exchange, there is a, a value extraction that happens there. And it doesn't have to be a value extraction. So one of the things you mentioned is this unresourced teaching moments. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a grassroots organization coming in to clean up. They might sometimes be um, in the middle of a project, in the middle of a program, and being forced to clean up, to educate, to train, to mm. teach. And that puts them in a very difficult position where on the one hand, it is a source of change, because you want to do the work and that doesn't happen to anyone else in the future. But also you're doing work that you're not getting paid for, you're not compensated for. And that's really, really difficult because it's the potential of change in the future, but you're experiencing harm now. Mm. And 
you have experienced historic harm that you're bringing in uh, to be able to do the washing up, to be able to do the training, the education, the consultancy work that doesn't get recognized, doesn't get acknowledged. And another maybe point of hope is some organizations are now acknowledging that and paying for it. And some grassroots organizations are now saying, no, this is consultancy work and we're going to charge you for this. Yeah, and I think there's something, this conversation is making me think about all of the funds that were set up in 2020 in response to the rise of Black Lives Matter and all that disappeared following that, all the resourcing that went into Black-led organisations and movements and artists that completely evaporated in the years after that. And it's like, it feels like the sticky point here is doing this work when no one's looking it's like don't just get in your EDI consultant when you've like messed up publicly and someone's called you out on it like do that because it's important to do that work you know well forever and if you you will need to get in other people to do that fundamentally from an organization I think On a positive note, though, is what some people have moved on to is access for uh, D-deaf, disabled and neurodivergent people, which I think is really exciting, but it also shouldn't be one or the other. And I think the other kind of exciting example that I've seen is at least two organisations that we've previously worked with. Uh, The young team members who work there have set up their own... Um, one of them is called a challenge group. So there's this kind of um, swell of, as we know, at Rising, young people are here to make change. Young people are demanding a different future than they've been promised. Hello, it's me again. I'm jumping back in to encourage you to take a break and rest your precious ears or eyes just for a moment. Uh, but before you pause, here's a small question from Yuella for you to mull over during the break. I wonder what institutions would still be running if the grassroots organisations were the ones that wrote the bids. Like, who would still be here? Who would still be relevant? Who would grassroots organisations want to work with? So please feel free to pause the episode now and we'll see you when you're back. Hope your ears or eyes are feeling refreshed if you took a pause. Um, And now we're going to jump straight back in with comparing the differences in opinion between the grassroots organisations and the cultural institutions that Addy interviewed. Was the point of view from the institution interviews very different or noticeably more or less positive than the grassroots organisations? Well, I guess there's a little bit of self-selection bias from the perspective of the people from institutions who've agreed to participate are the people already doing the work. They are the people who are interested in these conversations. They are the people changing policies, procedures, thinking about um, equity, accessibility. And from their perspective, very often in these conversations, it has been pure acknowledgement of the privilege that they have to work in these institutions. And 
to be honest and just fully transparent, I've not had interactions or interviews with people from institutions who are not aware of that privilege and they're not trying to do the work. Because let's be honest, those people are very unlikely to say, yes, I will talk to you about how shitty we are mm. in terms of how we treat our <laughs> communities and the engagement partners. Mm. Yeah. You know, because even when you think about on a more of a strategic level in institutions, is this the stuff that they're thinking about or that they're talking about? Like or often it is a completely different, you know, unless you've like written an arts council bid and you're or an MPO and you've got to like look at these investment principles and talk about, you know, a lot of people just want the headlines of the engagement and like engagement is so much more messier and longer and yeah it, it's not something that is like we worked with x amount of people or we you know like or like this is we're partnering with these people like there was a massive story behind that of which in most other departments there's not there's not that much of a story and um maybe it's the way in which we um you know we need to now or like engagement teams or managers or whatever need to be able to um to kind of resist when it comes to um senior management or boards and say actually this needs more time even in terms of the reporting even if it's like you know doing the reporting for the board for the board meeting this is going to be the biggest bit. So you see in terms of even the way in which the, the papers are laid out of like, this is the most important piece of, of work we're doing. Because I think there is that kind of hollowing it out and like seeing people and bodies as commodities or just bums on just seats. Numbers. So, yeah, numbers, bums on seats, all that stuff. When actually there's a whole, there's so many dynamics, there's so much power, there's so much um, tensions that are happening and maybe it's about us changing the way that we report to think about, like, for example, last year for our impact report, we called it our failure report. And it was all about the things that didn't go well. And there's that thing about you were saying, Andriana, about um, accountability. And maybe there's something more about that kind of what's really happening or what are the tensions and leading with tensions. But just kind of moving on that conversation because it feels like engagement and participation are just are oh, they love co-design everyone loves co-design co-production it's such a good word <laughs> but it stays in engagement it doesn't go anywhere else people don't even co-design with their audiences when it comes to programming like well, the only place that happens is in their learning and participation or anything they're doing with schools or a workshop or whatever but it never goes you know beyond that God forbid it goes to like on an organizational level. Yeah. And we, we, you know, we know this around the kind of culture change that has to happen within institutions, but it's really about whose role that is. And often, you know, it's, it's designated to the grassroots organizations and they are there to poke and prod and hold a mirror up, but they're not there to do the work because if they do the work, then it's not sustainable. Once they leave, it's, it, it falls apart. It goes back to how it was. But also that's the point that it once again puts grassroots organisations in this teeny tiny box of you are here to support us. Mm. You are here to help us reach these audiences. You are here 
to help us learn how to be anti-racist or less racist. You're here to support us to still exist mm. without necessarily allowing grassroots organizations to do the things they want to do that yeah. align with their mission. Um, and it essentially forces every grassroots organization in one way or another to act as a sector support organization yes. instead of doing the things that bring them joy. Mm. I think a lot of arts and culture institutions haven't caught up to the fact that they're only relevant to like a very small group of people. Like, you know, a lot of people in cities don't even know who you are or where you are, didn't even know that you guys existed, don't, you know, come to any of your things. Um, But you're part of this massive bubble. And it might be because of, like, where a lot of institutions are located. If we're thinking about, like, Bristol or or in major cities, it's usually in the city centre. So you you do, you know, often it's tourists and it's other people, you know, who are travelling down or, you know, or of a particular demographic who are going to be using your organisation or, or frequenting them. Um, but if institutions had to be based in local communities, I think they would realise how quickly um, they're not relevant to the people of, the, of that actual city. And I think it's this kind of delusion or they're just... But you know, quite delusional about, um, yeah, maybe their own power. Like, you know, actually thinking, having ideas of grandeur or feeling like you're actually doing some shit when you're not really, like, no one knows who you are, hun. <laughs> Sorry. We, other than <laughs> arts council. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, what a soundbite. Yes. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna make that my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> like whenever an unknown number calls you, it's like no one knows who you are, hun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sometimes we do these recordings mm. and it's like you choose violence, and some days you're like chill. <laughs> Just depends on what day it I, is I, or what time. Yeah, I love this side of you though you are, I love it when it like comes out it's definitely yeah it's a pick and choose moment mm. isn't it it's like how many bad partnerships have we had recently whether I'm mm. going to give you the benefit of the doubt or not yeah. sometimes and that's the humanity of it again mm. right it's like if you're having a bad day you I don't know you have road rage more because you're already having a bad day yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I don't think that's healthy or right um but I do feel like in an explanation of Rising's evolution, it's definitely like we've had a lot of bad partners and a lot of bad days. And so we're at a point where we no longer want to take that shit anymore. And if that means we don't make enough money to exist, then we don't make enough money to exist. Mm. Um, I don't feel like institutions running a building have that luxury to be like, if we stop being relevant, we could just close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think a lot of them have that luxury or could ever get to a place where they're comfortable with that sentiment. A question that I raised during the recording of this episode was around if there was an ideal size for an institution or an organisation to be. The larger an organisation becomes, the more staff and audiences there are to manage 
So is there such a thing as an ideal size in order to run in a sustainable and healthy way? Jess is going to help us get into this idea. What's the perfect size for an organisation to not be toxic, to do less harm? If we think about institutions as being organisations of a particular size. I mean, at Rising, uh, when we were founded, I think Kamina Walton, who founded Rising, had this thing of never employing more than 10 people. And we've never even come close to that. I think the closest we got was seven and everyone's always been part-time. Um, and it really hit home for me, at, like what you were saying, Yuella, about how money comes into the system and the city and gets absorbed by these organisations. There was a particularly large bit of funding that came into Bristol and was funnelled through a few organisations. And they, I've later learned, have taken like a 30% admin fee just off the top. And then we've been involved in like some of the trickle down of this where we found out that we're on like a steering group and there's like two and a half full time equivalent staff working on this program. And the level of delivery is like non-existent. And that's like half, two two and a half people is half the rising team. And the work that we do and the impact that we have is like 10 times this trickle down random group of people so it's a very like not standardized research methodology sorry Andriana you know it's not a great case study but that idea that institution there's so much waste institutionally Mm. when you get to a certain size that this money just gets absorbed and like I think a lot of people are surprised by how small rising is versus our impact and all we want to do is grow in impact but because we have this model where the team is small, but the community is great, it gives us that this economy of scale in some ways where we can like flex up and down um, in a way some organisations might do in more um, exploitative ways, like through zero hours contracts and things like that. Mm. Um, we do have that flex. But yeah, institutionally, I mean, like, I would love to sit down with an org chart of the major institutions (laughs) and like, whilst I don't want anybody to leave their, lose their job personally on a personal level, I do think there's a question of like, do you need 10 people in your curatorial team when the visitors experience people aren't even making the real living wage and they're actually the public face of your organisation? Like more conversations around Mm. that could be, I think would be a great place of equity. Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, Because I was thinking as well about the, like, the perception of size, like how you within an organisation feel or how big you are or how small. Because a lot of um, institutions that we speak to often feel like they'll be like, you know, because we're a small team and we're a small team. And... You know, they have a building, maybe. They have a building, so everyone thinks that they're big. But in terms of where they are and how they feel, they're like, we're tiny, we're really small, we can't, you know, we're at that full capacity, all of these things. And it's really interesting because um, even though we are a small team, we never, we never really talk about the fact that we're a small team. It never comes up in conversation 
it's never used as a reason why we can't do something. Um, and I think there is something about how, you know, yeah, your perceptions of your reality then make them re- make it real. And in terms of what you deliver or you feel that you can deliver, if you feel like you're small, but you're in a massive institution, like a building, but you're a team of, say, 15 people, they'll be like, that's tiny, that's tiny, we're really, really small, we're really, really small. When, you know, Rising delivers on, on local and national projects, um, multiple projects, you know, a week, at a time, you know, simultaneously, you know, with a tiny, 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 teeny, tiny micro, you know, we used to call ourselves a micro agency and we kind of dropped the micro or micro social enterprise or whatever, because, you know, we wanted to kind of show that we were small, we were different and we were bespoke, but now we don't even use that because it's like, is that a either a self-fulfilling prophecy or is that us putting ourselves limiting belief on ourselves about our size we're honest with ourselves about our capacity and we're honest with ourselves about um what you know what we can do when it comes to planning and that feels like it's a real like that's a real strength and an asset because not only does it help us but it helps our partners as well to be like oh yeah we're taking the month of in august so nothing's going to happen then so you're welcome because therefore now you can have a break (laughs) in august too with this project (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think there is a, you know, a lot of, yeah, a lot of the institutions that I've known around the city, they have about 15, 15 to 30, but I guess there's, you know, there's other organisations that you know, Jess, that are bigger. Um, but sometimes I do think it is about your, like, the mental shift and, and the, and your, your perception. So, but going back to that point of quantification, I don't think it's a matter of size. I think it's a matter of where you can create the most value. And this whole idea of power comes from being able to say no. Power comes from, or you've achieved power, I guess, to a degree when you can say, no, we're not going to do this. Or when you can pull the plug and you can afford to pull the plug. Mm. When you can say, actually, this is not working and there's no point to continue because we're just doing harm. Mm. And from my perspective, that's where the idea of the sustainable size of an organization is when these conversations can happen honestly, when these decisions can be made and Mm. people feel safe that they're not going to be harmed based on how they're going to be perceived by someone else what it will mean for their reputation what it would be what it would mean Mm. for their financial security as an organization it's can we say no to this yeah Mm. um and the other thing it made me think of is i went to this um talk i can't remember who it was by but it was called sepals and the uh the guy speaking was Jack Tan, who'd been involved a lot in um, the campaign around, I think, the Chinese Museum in Manchester. Um, Basically, that they were institutionally racist and they'd brought in, like, a board of Asian people um, to help them not be racist anymore. And they were like, this is untenable, made a public statement, disbanded the whole thing. Um... And I'd asked him in the like Q&A at the end, like whether institutions are just fundamentally like bad. (laughs) Like, 
Um, and he'd said um, that institutions are just what happens when people get together and start working together mm. and doing things together. It's not necessarily that like people coming together to do something, forming an institution is bad. It's like the systemic ways that we set up institutions and we think we should relate to each other in mm. something of that size that is problematic and bad, quotation. Mm. Um and I, that's really stuck with me because I think I was a very, like, no one should need to be that big type, you know, kill the billionaires, no one needs to be that rich energy. And actually that idea that institutions are just, like, a bigger group of people mm. <laughs> is, like, a nice way to think about it, but also is frustrating when you're trying to make this kind of change, when you're like, you're just a bunch of people, like, get it together. Yeah, why is it so hard? <laughs> you're just a group of people. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that's but the challenge is that so often these institutions were established by very specific groups of people mm. who had very specific yes. experiences and they have Absolutely. been replicated for decades or maybe even hundreds of years mm. and maybe the best thing around building empathy with grassroots organizations understanding what it means to run an organization of five people who work part-time is to have job swaps so mm. maybe every creative director goes and works for three months in a grassroots institution or organization mm. to see what that feels like mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah love that that would actually be sick hello again you have made it to the end of the episode Whee! Uh, we hope it's stimulated some thoughts for you and as always we'd love to leave you with an invitation for reflection and to join in the conversation that we're having. So a question for you would be who benefits more from a collaborative initiative? Perhaps think about some collaborations you or people you know have been involved in and see if you can notice who may have been benefiting more and why was that the case? As always, we'd love to hear your answers, so please share any thoughts you have with Rising Arts Agency via email or through social media. The music was created by myself, Joe Hill, and this episode was co-produced along with Yuela, Jess and Adriana. We want to thank the Collaborate Fund for making this work possible and give a big thanks to all the organisations who gave their time to talk with Addy for this research. We've only got one more episode left in the series and it's going to be a good one. So hopefully see you for that soon and keep up the challenge and take it steady. Lots of love, everyone. See ya.